What it, what it basically means is Lenin elevates Marx into the mainstream, displaces other socialist competitor thought, and uh, the political yield of the Soviet Union is really that continuation that we see as making possible the intellectual revival of Marx that we see in the present day. Welcome to Act in Line a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Karl Marx. If you're listening to this podcast, it's unlikely that I need to explain to you who Karl Marx is. You know he's the author of the Communist Manifesto and the father of one of the most significant and impactful philosophical and economic theories of the late 19th and the 20th century. It would be fair for you to assume that Marx was always celebrated in the way that he was throughout the 20th century, as numerous countries, like the Soviet Union, sought to put his theory into practice. But a new research paper from Philip W. Magnus and Michael McCovey says that this common popular understanding of Marx's significance is wrong. They contend, and seek in the paper to demonstrate empirically, that Marx was largely dismissed as a scholar in his own time, and that he owes his outsized influence today to historical and political events, in particular, the success of the Russian Revolution. Today, I talk with Phil Magnus about the findings in his paper, how we should properly understand the influence of Karl Marx, and what it means that his ideas seem to again be ascendant in the modern world. Philip W. Magnus is Senior Research Faculty and Director of Research and Education at the American Institute for Economic Research. He holds a Ph.D. and MPP from George Mason University's School of Public Policy and a B.A. from the University of St. Thomas, Houston. Prior to joining AIER, Dr. Magnus spent over a decade teaching public policy, economics, and international trade at institutions including American University, George Mason University, and Berry College. Magnus's work encompasses the economic history of the United States and Atlantic world, with specializations in the economic dimensions of slavery and racial discrimination, the history of taxation, and measurements of economic inequality over time. He also maintains an active research interest in higher education policy and the history of economic thought. He is the co-author, along with Michael McCovey, of the research paper, The Mainstreaming of Marx, Measuring the Effect of the Russian Revolution on Karl Marx's Influence, which we'll be discussing today. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Phil Magnus, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks for having me. So we're here today to discuss uh, a paper that you published uh, near the end of 2022, um, uh, it's you and Michael. How do you say Michael's last name? 
Uh, it's Michael McCovey. Michael McCovey. Uh, the title, The Mainstreaming of Marx, Measuring the Effect of the Russian Revolution on Karl Marx's Influence. So why don't we start with some level setting? Uh, I think most people in our audience are going to know, generally speaking, who Karl Marx is. But just for fun, give us, you know, your presentation. If you're talking to somebody who has no idea who Karl Marx is, describe Karl Marx for them. So Karl Marx is a socialist, political economist and theorist, uh, some would say a philosopher, lives in the 19th century. Uh, so he dies in 1883. Uh, you can see his period of, of kind of peak activity is between roughly the revolutions of 1848 in Europe. That's what uh, spawns his famous document, the Communist Manifesto, co-authored with Frederick Engels. And then uh, his next major work, it comes in 1867. He writes a book called uh, Capital, a critique of political economy, sometimes referred to as Das Kapital, uh, because it comes out in its original German. Um, and as such, he is a framer of a major strain of socialist or communist theorizing. Uh, basically offering a critique of the economic system that existed in the 19th century and a series of predictions to bring about a transition of world society into a socialist and eventually communist state. Um, as such, he's also the major inspiration of 20th century communism, including all the movements that we know very well, uh, the Leninist-Stalinist uh, Bolshevik uprising that occurs in Russia in 1917, uh, and the successor events of the Soviet Union, are explicitly framed as a Marxist revolution. Uh, we also get other iterations that come in Maoist China. Uh, we get iterations in Pol Pot's Cambodia, uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba. Most recently, uh, Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela have claimed direct inspiration from Marxian theory in trying to move toward a socialist state in Venezuela. Uh, so he's become a major theorist of the 20th and 21st centuries insofar as... Uh, Others try to act upon and implement the system of thought that he laid out in the mid-19th century. The funny part of asking that question, of course, is that, you know, for the kind of people I would tune into a podcast like Act in Line, they're going to be familiar with Karl Marx. Um, lay out what what is the popular conception about Karl Marx's level of influence and importance? You know, what do... Uh, what do people think they know? Because we're going to get to what's in the paper about what you think their misconceptions are about Marx and his influence. But what is the popular conception right now about Karl Marx and how influential he and his ideas from those writings have been on the late uh, 19th and 20th century in leading into the 21st century? Sure. So uh, this falls into a category, I think, that we characterize as some of our popular writings as Das Karl Marx problem. Uh, pointing to a contradiction that exists, and this was the root of our paper. Uh, so the most common place that people encounter Karl Marx today is in university classrooms and academic texts, uh, where he is cited not only as a major figure in the intellectual canon of the world, but quite possibly the preeminent philosophical figure in the last 200 years. And I say this with an empirical basis. Uh, give you two points of evidence on that. The first is if you uh, look at statistics on uh, readings that are assigned on university course syllabi in colleges and universities today. Karl Marx is consistently at the very top of that list. Uh, the Communist Manifesto 
is almost always one of the most frequently assigned books uh, outside of like grammar manuals. Uh, it runs neck and neck usually with Plato's Republic. And then anything else with the Western canon is far, far beneath that. So you have Marx and Plato at the top. Uh, then a little further down, there's Aristotle. And then way further down, John Locke, Adam Smith, Martin Luther King, all the major figures that we would think of as part of this intellectual canon. Uh, so he's everywhere in the classrooms. And the second thing is he has a very uh, pronounced, I'd say, even dominant presence as an intellectual figure in scholarly writing, scholarly citations. Uh, so Nature Magazine wrote a report uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago where they looked at uh, the Google Scholar citation index uh, mechanism. And a group of social scientists had figured a way to uh, establish weighted measures of influence of major figures across history by counting their citations, how frequently they appear in academic works. What well, turns out, Karl Marx is also consistently at the top of that. So the, uh, the, the conceptualization of Marx that we have is that he was always this major figure. Uh, he tapped into the zeitgeist of the mid-19th century, diagnosed problems with capitalism and the course of economic events, the course of history ever since then has been a, a series of validations, supposedly, of his work, even to the point that in uh, 2018, on the 200th anniversary of Marx's birth, uh, you had mainstream publications like the New York Times, uh, the Financial Times, The Economist magazine, uh, as well as all sorts of other political and commentary magazines, ran anniversary editions. And the gist of it is, uh, happy birthday, Karl Marx, your theories were right. So uh, this notion of Marx as this very popular, always eminent figure has really kind of taken set in the academy. And yet there's the, uh, this is where the, the contradiction emerges, uh, why I call it Das Karl Marx problem. If you go back to the 19th century and look at the initial reception of Marx, and I'm not saying just within a year of Das Kapital being publishing, I'm talking four decades almost after Marx's career, he has seen as someone that is only warring, warranting notice among really two factions. One are the very tiny niche group of radical socialist followers, which are a subset of the socialist world at the time. Remember, he's a competitor theorist of dozens of others. Uh, but there are Marxian socialists that are almost like a cult-like following around this figure. And then there are academic economists who assess his theories immediately after uh, Das Kapital was published, uh, in the decades that follow up, they assess his theories and they soundly reject them. They find that he has premised his entire argument on an, on what is now an obsolete theory of value, the labor theory of value. Uh, Marx publishes in 1867. In 1871, there is a uh, an intellectual revolution in the economics profession uh, where they cast aside the labor theory of value and adopt uh, subjective theories of value or marginalism. And that has since come to dominate the field as being scientifically vindicated. What it means is Marx was obsolete almost as soon as he introduced himself into this discussion. And as a result, the economics profession and uh, most of academia that even noticed him at all prior to the Re Russian Revolution considered him a very uh, fringe kind of heterodox thinker who had been rendered obsolete by the most modern advances in social sciences uh, within the past few decades. Uh, so on the eve of the Rus Russian Revolution, uh, if you asked a, a prominent economist or academic, and there are many such records of this, what they think of, of Karl Marx, well, I'll paraphrase Alfred Marshall. He says uh, Marx's dense Hegelian uh, terminology used to obscure circular reasoning that's not worth our time. John Maynard Keynes, uh, certainly a figure of the left, 
1925, writes an essay where he says Das Kapital is an obsolete textbook of no interest to the modern world. Uh, something that's been rendered obsolete. Uh, so they you have this really damning assessment of Marxist theories at the time of the Russian Revolution and for the decades prior to that, juxtaposed to this huge academic acclaim that he has today, there's a tension. And that's what we decided to investigate. Given my background, I'm familiar with the critiques from uh, free market economists of Karl Marx's uh, economics writing. Um, although I, I often hear that, you know, at least he had uh, some interesting, perhaps, insights as, say, maybe as a sociologist or as uh, some other kind of a philosopher. Um, if, uh, and, you know, you've laid out this uh, understanding at the time that there was a dismissal of his economic theories. Was there any recognition of him at the time as perhaps being interesting along the lines of sociology or philosophy unrelated to his uh, economic theories? It's very little. Now, there are sociologists that are aware of him, but they they take him up as an economic thinker or a thinker in economic terms of uh, materialist uh, theory of history converted over into economic thinking. So, uh, you know, like Max Weber does notice him, uh, although he's nowhere near a prominent figure in Weber's work until the very end of Weber's life after the Russian Revolution. Um, so there are some contemporaries that are aware of Marx. They're generally dismissive of him. One thing that we do in our paper is we looked at all of the top uh, academic journals that existed from between roughly the 1880s and 1916 and did a citation count. How many times do they mention Karl Marx versus Adam Smith versus uh, other figures of that era? And what we find out is Marx is relatively obscure. The only place he seems to be noticed in any number of uh, recurring citations is in economics journals, and they're rebutting him. You go to law journals, sociology journals, uh, even some political science journals, uh, literature journals, he's basically non-existent. And it turns out in sociology, the much more prominent figure at that time is the classical liberal theorist Herbert Spencer, uh, who is cited at significantly higher rates uh, than Karl Marx and is considered in that era one of the founding figures of sociology. Now, sociology does something really interesting. In the mid-20th century, they jettison Herbert Spencer as one of their founding fathers, and they kind of retrofit this false history of Karl Marx as taking Spencer's place among one of the three or four major figures of the sociology discipline. But even that is, is like this... Uh, uh, very backward-looking approach to the history of the discipline. He's not there in the era when he is supposedly considered now today the founding figure. Uh, this is a, a later edition, a later revision of their own history to insert him in that place. So in his time, he's not well regarded as an economist. He's not highly regarded as a sociologist or a, a, another stripe of philosopher. What is it that transforms Karl Marx into this just enormous looming figure, certainly over the 20th century, uh, that gives us this current conception that you just laid out, that he, from the beginning, was this incredibly influential uh, figure, that his writings really took hold, that they inspired a lot of people. What creates our modern misunderstanding of the importance of Karl Marx? So, so this is the question that we investigated empirically in the paper. I've also done some qualitative work that uh, seems to align with the conclusions we come to in the paper. But the simple answer is Marx was elevated into the intellectual mainstream by a political event. And that political event is a small but very dedicated band of his followers, uh, the Bolshevik, uh, the Leninist Bolsheviks. Uh, they were avowed Marxist. Lenin himself was a theorist in the Marxist tradition. 
uh, in 1917, staged basically a coup d'etat at a time of great political disruption, uh, seized control of the government of Russia, initiated a civil war in which they are later victorious. And following the course of those events, one of the first things Lenin does is he devotes substantial resources of the Russian state to promoting the intellectual work and philosophy of Karl Marx. And this is everything from the, the statues and propaganda posters that they put out to uh, serious scholarly endeavors such as translating and, uh, and putting together collected editions of Marx's every scrap of paper and work that he ever did and mailing them all over the world. If the Russian Revolution, I recognize this is an unfair question that I'm going to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, if the Russian Revolution fails, or at least does not succeed in the way that it does, that you just described, do you think Marx plays such a dominant role in these kinds of economic and philosophical conversations today? Would he be elevated by some other movement? Um, or do you think that... Uh, Marx's influence, if uh, the Russian Revolution fails, dies with that revolution. So there's the great counterfactual history question. And although we can never establish counterfactual history because they, they didn't happen, uh, what we can do is ponder the thought experiment and then attempt to tease out through empirics what the counterfactual would look like. Uh, so one of the starting points of our inquiry is we noticed that several prominent figures across history had made an interesting observation about Marx. They basically say exactly what you did. They said, had the Russian Revolution not played out the way that it did, had it failed, had it been stillborn, that Marx would not have exerted the level of influence that he did in the 20th century. Uh, this comes in uh, in several very prominent esteemed works of uh, intellectual history. Uh, so Frederick Copleston's multi-volume uh, History of Philosophy has a chapter on Marxism where he posits this thought experiment in almost those exact terms. Uh, Alan Ryan, who is probably best known today as the editor of Isaiah Berlin's work, uh, but also a prominent political theorist, he does a book where he writes an introduction on Marxism, and he basically says, as a thought experiment, had uh, the Soviet Union never been created, had Lenin lost the revolution, uh, we probably wouldn't be writing this book today that we have about Marx. Eric Hobsbawm who's a really fascinating figure. He's a Marxist historian, probably one of the most prominent Marxist historians of the of the 20th and early 21st centuries. Uh, he writes an edition of a modern scholarly edition of the Communist Manifesto, the preface to it, where he traces the intellectual history. And his great observation is that for most of the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, the manifesto itself was a fairly obscure text that was only noticed and really uh, seized upon by fellow travelers, dedicated Marxists themselves. And he makes this observation. He says, it's the resources of the Soviet state that elevate Marx after 1917 into the mainstream. Uh, so seeing all of these qualitative assessments from across the political spectrum, we have Copleston to Hobsbawm and everything in between have observed this thought experiment. What would have happened to Marx had uh, the Russian Revolution failed? Uh, we thought we should investigate that and do so empirically. So what does this all mean? Um, the popularity, uh, how celebrated Karl Marx is being a creation of the success of a political event. Uh, what do you think the meaning of that is to us now and how we should understand Marx going forward? And then I guess I'll come back to this, but I guess the uh, the other question to attach to that would be, 
what have been the reactions of people to this paper of yours uh, that is attempting, again, to you know empirically contextualize the importance of Marx in his time and understand the events that precipitated his current popularity, which strikes me as the kind of thing that, you know, I again, I'm not a Marxist theorist. I'm not a Marxist economist. I don't even play one on TV. But like, I don't see how that necessarily devalues what I view as the importance of Karl Marx as a thinker. So uh, feel free to take those two questions in whichever order you would like. Yeah, uh, well, and I think it, it illustrates a divide among Marxists themselves. They're a notoriously schismatic bunch. We knew that even before Lenin jumped into the yes. mentioned Bolsheviks. Uh, there was a social democracy branch of Marxism in Germany uh, that viscerally hated what Lenin was doing. Um, so the interesting thing of this, you know, we posed a counterfactual history in that question. What does it mean for a political event to have elevated Marx? Well, for some Marxists, this undercuts a core theoretical precept of Marxism. For Marxism, in addition to its prescriptive aims of bringing about a socialist society uh, through revolutionary or other means, I mean, Marx himself is pretty clear on being on the revolutionary side of that, although there are attempts to implement his uh, uh, his system, his design through non-revolutionary means. But nonetheless, uh, the premise of it is uh, built upon basically a game of numbers. Marx looks back at human history and says, uh, you know, history, the great uh, struggle, conflict of history is for control of material resources between the haves and have-nots in the capitalist era. This is the bourgeois versus the proletariats. And one of the underlying themes of Marx's observation here is the proletariats outnumber the bourgeois. So the pure uh, numerical majority basically becomes the causal mechanism that allows Marx to predict that socialism will eventually succeed. It's guaranteed. It's scientifically assured to be ascendant. All we need to do is awaken the proletarian class to assert its, uh, well, basically a class consciousness theory that emerges from this, but to basically assert its control over the means of production and therefore socialist society follows. Well, if it turns out that a socialist revolution such as happened in 1917 is not coming out of a mass uprising. It's not class consciousness uh, emerging among large segments of the working class and asserting its control. Rather, it's a very small band of basically Marxist intellectuals who don't fit the working class uh, paradigm at all. You know, Lenin is is not a, uh, a factory laborer. He's an elite intellectual that is exiled into Switzerland and uh, moves around Europe writing these dense Marxist tracts that other Marxists read and realize. So it's like a movement of philosophers. If that's the precipitating event and not a uh, proletarian uprising that brings about the revolution, then there's a problem in Marxist theory. At least those that would focus on that would say so. The second consideration here is if it turns out that Marx is only put on the map by the Soviet Union propagandizing him, all successor Marxist movements that we have today, or at least the vast majority of them, uh, actually owe some causal attribution to that event occurring. And, you know, you, you see some of the Marxist revivalism in the academy today the one thing that they seem to all be in agreement upon is that they're different than the Soviet Union. They don't want the baggage of the Soviet uh, legacy on their hands. And, and, you know, you can't really blame them when you're talking about tens of millions, hundreds of millions of, of deaths that are left behind in the wake of 20th century attempts to affect a Marxist regime. So they want to dissociate themselves from that historical legacy. 
And yet, if we have an empirical demonstration that marks as salience, at least in the immediate aftermath of the uh, uh, Russian Revolution in 1917, comes about from those political events, uh, well, what are the implications for success of Marxist movements in the 20th century? It, it becomes very plausible that it's the case uh, that uh, other Marxist movements that are attempting to dissociate themselves from the Soviet legacy really cannot do so in an effective and clear, clean-cut way. Uh, so they really don't like that baggage. Well, I was going to ask you, what uh, what implications does what you've uncovered here have for, uh, and this is such a common question, or less a question than a statement, of people who you know wish to defend Marxism and Marxist theory and have only, as you've laid out, the... Uh, countries, places where it has tried to be applied and has resulted over and over again in uh, brutality, statism, mass death, um, the subjugation of a lot of different people. And we get the uh, answer to that is, well, it's not, that hasn't been real Marxism. It's not right. real it's communism. Real right. It yeah. never is. But what uh, what implications do you think what you've uncovered here has for, uh, you know, f- more fully answering that question about the attempts to implement Marxist theory? Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, I think the simple answer here is that uh, we have to recognize the fact that Lenin is what puts Marx on the mainstream intellectual map. Uh, so the version of Marxism that we get today uh, necessarily comes through Leninism. It's the one that wins out the internal debate among fellow socialists, elevates Marx into kind of like the king of the socialists, whereas, uh, you know, in 1916, he would have been one of many different competitor theories. Uh, you know, we, we talked about Henry George's socialism was actually cited at a higher rate and referenced at a higher rate, which is a spinoff of Georgism. It's not the only version. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, if you ask someone at the turn of the century, Georgia's socialism is a much more recognized concept than Marxian socialism. And that also demonstrates, you know, Georgia's socialism is very much a peripheral movement of that era. Uh, so what it, what it basically means as Lenin elevates Marx into the mainstream, displaces other socialist competitor thought, and uh, the political yield of the Soviet Union is really that continuation that we see uh, as making possible the uh, the intellectual revival of Marx that we see in the present day uh, from, from really about the 1920s onward. So the empirical tests that we do, we use citation indexes that come out of Google Ingram. And then we also constructed a parallel one from newspaper databases, so scan text, look for uh, uh, basically the number of times that an author's name appears in a given text. And uh, the empirical proof we come to find is in the immediate aftermath of 1917, it basically triples the references to Karl Marx that appear in English language texts. We do the same thing, repeat the experiment in German language text, basically the exact same result. And that tripling... It moves him from a very slow, steady, uh, not really growing segment of the socialist periphery to a mainstream intellectual figure that's now being cited at like rates that match or exceed Adam Smith uh, almost overnight. I mean, the trajectory shoots upward from 1917 to about the late 1920s. It's just a marked increase in Marxist uh, references, citations, and then it kind of levels out and it stays and remains high. It persists across the 20th century after that's been established. Uh, so there's the empirical evidence of the narrative uh, evidence that we're finding. We've got empirical validation of it. Uh, and it, To me, I think the, these two factors are kind of like a one-two punch 
uh, saying that if you are drawing on Marxist theory today, you need to recognize that one of the main reasons this has intellectual salience comes from prior events. And the main prior event that we can identify and isolate is the Soviet uprising in 1917. How has your paper been received? I was tempted to ask that question in the way of, has your paper been well-received and why not? But uh, yeah. feel, feel free to, to, to just attack that one. So, so in one sense, it was very well-received. Uh, we went through uh, rigorous multi-rounds, peer review assessment at the Journal of Political Economy, uh, which is considered a, an A-list journal in economics. Uh, it's well-known for its rigor. And uh, you know, I can say from the insider perspective, uh, this isn't just... Uh, uh, a rubber stamp review process. This was where uh, something where we were getting like 15 to 20 page long uh, referee reports of all these specific tests we need to run, all these specific items we need to address, uh, uh, include this component of the intellectual history, you name it, uh, is a very rigorous three round review. And it makes it through the process at a, a well-regarded journal. I, I view that as intellectual vindication. Uh, it's also had some favorable reception in the media and the press. After that, uh, people that watch these journals, they're like, oh, we have an empirical demonstration, a really interesting, innovative empirical demonstration of something that uh, uh, intellectual theorists and historians and philosophers, you know, as I mentioned, have toyed around with for basically the last hundred years, what put Marx on the map. And they this runs across the spectrum. It's, uh, it's Copleston, it's Hobsbawm. It's all of these other major figures of the intellectual sphere have asked this question before no one's ever measured it. So we measured it and we found evidence of it. Uh, then there's the second set of responses. That's the Twitterati. That's the social media mob. Uh, and I would basically say that, that they boil down to a, 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 uh, a, a single set of uh, vehement, vitriolic, insult-laden derision at the paper mostly from people who have either never read the full paper, they were raising objections that uh, we very clearly addressed. And if you simply would read the paper, uh, it'd be like, oh, uh, so, so one of the major objections that we encountered, and we've since investigated this even further and found validation of our position, uh, was this claim that Marx may not have been popular in English texts, but because he wrote in German and he had a socialist following in Germany, therefore he must have been... Uh, a recognized theorist before 1917 in Germany. And they point to some political movements. So in 1891, uh, the Social Democratic Party of Germany has a Marxist element that infuses part of Marxist doctrine into their platform. And the obvious implication there is, uh, well, if the social democracy in Germany was promoting Marxism, then Marx was, was in fact already popular before Lenin came along. Uh, in fact, we investigated this. We looked at German citations, and there's not a bump to Marx's references in the uh, social democracy era of Germany between 1891 and World War I. Uh, it's, it's just simply not there. It's, uh, and when it turns out, it's something that historians of the social democracy in Germany have long pointed out. There was a small group of elite Marxist theorists in the upper ranks of the party, and all they did was talk about ways to develop Marxist theory, but the rank and file, the voters, all they saw was like a reformist platform that was offering... Uh, uh, lower uh, number of hours worked and uh, public education reform and things like that. Uh, had no idea who Karl Marx was. Uh, so it turns out that the social democracy in Germany is not a good proxy for Marx's influence. And most historians who have looked into that have found out that Marx's name is basically unknown to most members of the Reich and file of the social democracy. 
Uh, so that objection is something we addressed in the paper, something we've since investigated even further uh, by running robustness te tests on the same stats. Uh, every single one of them seems to bear out our theory, and yet our critics keep going back to this as if it's like a truism uh, that Marx simply must have been popular in Germany. And I'm sitting here saying, no, the empirical evidence and the qualitative evidence say uh, very conclusively that he was not. You may uh, be familiar with the joke that uh, the last, uh, if we ever get down to just one last remaining Marxist, it's going to be a professor at a university in Latin America. Exactly. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned the popularity of it in the university sphere earlier. Uh, so uh, a couple uh, is a two-pronged question on that. Um, one, do you think there are any other reasons for that, at least for the contemporaneous popularity of it, uh, that go beyond uh, just what you've been laying out in the paper of the Russian Revolution popularizing Marx to the extent that it did. And what do you think the implications are of a a world where um, a thinker who was largely dismissed in his time, popularized by political events, dominates the university intellectual space that much? These are complex questions, and it's something that I'm constantly wrestling with is how what, what do we make of this? What do we make of this finding in the university system, uh, which I think is a, is a very valid avenue of inquiry because you basically have a situation, you, you know, it would be akin to someone who offered an erroneous theory of disease in 1900. It's tested and dismissed, and yet 50 years later, somebody else re-injects that erroneous theory of disease um, and suddenly it's now taught in all the biology departments. Well, correct me if you think this is a bad comparison, but like, you know, would you draw any uh, comparison between um, Malthusianism of as just being something that was, you know, it, it was presented and, and there's certainly its advocates, but, you know, it, it looks very foolish not very long after it is presented as theory. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's true of, of many intellectual movements that, uh, uh, for some reason, they continue to have resurgent salience. Uh, part of it, you know, you know uh, Frederick Hayek has the famous essay on uh, the intellectuals and socialism, and it's exploring why people of intellectual classes are drawn to kind of this amorphous tendency of, um, of viewing themselves as planners of society, of uh, gravitating to the socialist left. And one of the great insights of that paper that Hayek points out is uh, exactly kind of what we're finding in in our evidence, it's that uh, socialist movements almost always originate in the, among the intellectual class. It's not the factory workers that, that discover these things and rise up. It's always uh, uh, people that are generally of middle class, upper middle class, or even wealthy backgrounds that have university education, uh, that live a life of relative luxury, uh, that sit around and think of ideas, and they, they stumble into socialism. And it becomes a very salient uh, version of thought with us. So, so I think this is in part that inclination of um, of certain intellectual thinkers toward the amorphous world of socialism. You mix that with the fact that Lenin uh, has elevated Marxist theory after 1917. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a ripe formula for that socialist world to seize onto Marx as now their new standard bearer. Uh, so they coalesce around them. Even uh, socialists that previously would have described themselves as Lasallian socialists or Rockbertian socialists or Georgist socialists, uh, uh, suddenly that morphs into Marx where he, he uh, crowds out all of these other intellectual competitor traditions on the left, and then it emboldens it and strengthens it as he's the main figure or representative of socialist thought. 
uh, then it's kind of like off to the races from there. Did Marx, does Marx have anything to offer us? Um, you, know, you mentioned there's this conception that, you know, he taps into the zeitgeist of the time and all of that. And your your paper, I think, does a good job of dispensing with a lot of that understanding. Uh, does Marx offer us anything? So I think as a historical record of the mid-19th century industrial society of England, uh, you know, you can set aside some of the political commentary. He does have observations on the ground of working conditions. Uh, those are interesting. Uh, they're a um, um, reasonably well-researched part of the historical record in that era, although Marx is mostly a synthesizer of other works and other observations uh, to try to construct a narrative. So that's, I think, reasonably interesting. Uh, but it's interesting in the same sense that uh, we study other niche figures from that era. Uh, so absent the Russian Revolution, you know, the, one of the back to the counterfactual, uh, one of the things that we look at is who were Marx's contemporaries that are cited at uh, roughly the same level as him or at roughly the same pattern across time. Uh, so they're not really growing, they're not really shrinking, but there's like a really stable set. And part of our empirical design uses this pool of other authors. Uh, so we loaded up with every socialist theorist that we could reasonably find and identify. When it turns out, uh, the counterfactual marks, the synthetic marks that we construct is based, uh, is drawn heavily off of uh, Ferdinand LaSalle, uh, who's kind of like a democratic socialist theorist that was a contemporary competitor of Marx. They knew each other and hated each other because they were competing for some of the same movements. Uh, uh, LaSalle had a uh, more of a reformist through legislative approaches uh, style of getting to socialism. Marx rejects that for revolutionary reasons. Uh, another figure figure that comes up uh, very prominently there is Johann Karl Rodbertus, uh, who is an early theorist of surplus value theory. Uh, even to the point that in the 1870s and 1880s, Robertus's followers accused Marx of plagiarizing the concept of surplus value from him and not giving him proper credit. And there's this really heated battle. Marx dies in 1883. Frederick Engels pens this tirade defending Marx from the charge of plagiarism from the Rodbertians. Uh, these are the type of intellectual discourses that were going on on the periphery of the socialist left in the 19th century. And I think Marx is an interesting contributor to that. But it's a, a contributor in the same sense as, you know, if you looked at a movement today, uh, a fringe political movement that maybe has some interesting elements of its history and occasionally bursts into the mainstream of the political debate, uh, but certainly is not something that's like electorally viable, certainly not something that's governing a lot of countries today. Uh, we're in a real analogous uh, situation there. Uh, to what uh, Marxism was. I guess all of this is a, a way of saying that Marx would still be noticed today, but noticed as a niche figure of the radical labor movements of the 19th century and studied mostly for historical purposes, not as a theorist by which we want to remake or guide society as some are advocating today. What advice would you have for uh, scholars, people out there interested in studying the intellectual and political legacy of Marx and Marxism going forward, uh, given what your uh, paper does here to contextualize Marx historically? So there are two things. Um, one thing that we do intentionally in the paper is we actually lay out the intellectual history of Marx before 1917 and basically give a synopsis, an overview of how the marginal revolution arrives in the economics profession what that does to render his theories obsolete. Uh, there's also an internal contradiction in the way that Marx calculates labor prices uh, that both Marxists and non-Marxists grapple with. Uh, it's called the transformation problem. 
Marx dies without ever successfully solving the transformation problem. And then within a generation or two, uh, there are other theorists that attempt to mathematize it and they find that you, you simply cannot solve this uh, uh, what equation, is, set of equations. What is the transformation problem? Uh, so, so the gist is, you know, it, labor is a price to input, but it's also something that exists in a priced world. Uh, and if you are building a system, a theory of economics built upon uh, labor performed as being the mechanism that instills value into something, where do you get prices? And where do you get prices from finished goods if labor itself is a price? Uh, so in other words, a circularity exists between the wage labor price and the finished product price uh, that has to be uh, carried out simultaneously. And, and when you can't solve for that, uh, which is basically the, the problem Marx encounters in his own work, uh, it basically becomes impossible to play at an economy in this way. So uh, so he, he is hit with these two contradictions. Uh, the labor theory of value falls by the wayside. The transformation problem becomes a stumbling block for uh, affecting a Marxist uh, planned economy. Uh, it's important to know that because most theorists today do not have that economic background. Uh, Marx is more likely to be taught in the English department than the economics department. Uh, so... You don't have experts that understand the economic mechanisms here, and they end up rediscovering and unintentionally rehabilitating doctrines that are empirically false and have already been rendered obsolete in economics. And uh, they start teaching it as, oh, well, isn't this obvious? Uh, so it's like a retrograde move back to obsolete 19th century theory. It's important for people to understand that. Second implication is, uh, you know, this question you asked earlier about the uh, – uh, Whenever a Marxist movement goes awry today, the answer is always, well, that's not true socialism. Uh, I think one of the implications of our paper is, well, yes, it is, in fact, true socialism in the sense that it's a political derivative of previous Marxist movements all going back to the Soviet Union. That basically put that type of political activism and uh, uh, political accomplishment on the map by a chance event of this band of ruffians seizing control of a weak government in a moment of political chaos. And if you realize that history didn't necessarily have to turn out that way, uh, I mean, really, Lenin succeeds in many effects because of a roll of the dice. He was in the right place at the right time. He had incompetent opposition. Uh, there are moments in the Russian Civil War when the uh, uh, the White Army, the opposing faction, it just stumbles or, uh, or has a chance defeat that changes the course of human history. That's a very different story than this uh, Marxian narrative of a preordained, scientifically derived ascendance of a socialist state. Uh, so I would ask anyone that's looking at Marxist movements today uh, to start thinking of them in, in terms of almost like a public choice political economy rather than this philosophical ordination that derives from the uh, uh, Marxist self-proclaiming their inevitability. Final question, Phil. Uh since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is the state, the, the, the nation, the empire that is built off of the success of the Russian Revolution, which popularizes uh, Marx in the way that you've described, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, in your opinion, has Marxism, Marxist theory gotten uh, – more important, more well-regarded? Is it about, has it stayed about the same? Has it been diminished by the collapse of the Soviet Union? What really is the state of play of the intellectual landscape out there uh, of this theory and philosophy in response to the uh, this 
real world event, uh, which put a, in a sense, a, uh, a a bookend on what began with the Russian Revolution, what ends with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and in the meantime there, as you've spelled out already, elevates Marx to this enormously important figure. What is the current state of play in the intellectual space? Yeah, so, so you were uh, basically mapping out what I hope to be a future empirical project, is to test the same thing, citation patterns in response to 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, I haven't done so yet. Uh, you know, this is a, uh, a multi-year project that when you have to gather that data. And uh, I, I, I think I could subject it to some very similar forms of testing. And uh, I'll, I'll make a, a rough prediction of what I think would happen. Uh, and this is just based on the qualitative literature. After 1991, uh, you see a wave of academic studies that basically proclaim the failure of the Marxist system. This is the judgment of history. We ran this experiment. It failed. Marx is now in the dustbin. It turned out that capitalism or the, all the uh, competitor systems, free market uh, uh, economic system, neoclassical economics, whatever you want to call it, were all proclaimed the victors in 1991 after the Soviet Union fails. Uh, and really, especially when they start to peek behind the curtain of what was happening in the last few decades of the Soviet Union, they find that uh, they were fudging their economic statistics. And uh, supposed Soviet industrial prowess was basically painted over rust of a, an economy that was already fracturing in very deep ways. So in 1991, I think the, the thrust of the academy would have been, yes, Marx has been defeated. This is an old concept that we should now study for historical reasons. Fast forward 30 years later, and we've had a resurgence. And this resurgence has directly coincided with a shift to the left and really the far left among the professoriate. Uh, we see this in some other data points. There are surveys that have been administered since the 60s to today asking professors, what part of the political spectrum do you fall on? And it's the same thing as you'd ask the general public. Do you consider yourself conservative, center-right, moderate, center-left, left-wing? Uh, usually a five-point scale. And, you know, the, you ask the general American public, and that's a pretty stable measure over time. Uh, there, there's a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's like a third of the public is, is moderates. And then there's a third that's, uh, on the left and a third that's on the right. It fluctuates a little bit around that, but not very much. Well, if you do that same question among the professoriate from about the year 2000 until the present universities had always historically leaned slightly left of center, but it was, uh, just modestly left of center. Uh, so if you ran the survey in the late 1960s, about 45% of professors identified on the left. And then you'd have maybe 30 percent uh, would identify as moderates and then uh, the remainder as conservatives. So it's a plurality on the left with sizable minorities of the other two factions. Since 2000, the left wing component of the academy has just skyrocketed. It's now probably north of 60 percent of professors identifying the left. And if you go into the humanities and some of the social sciences, it's more like 80 or 90 percent. Uh, so this is historically unprecedented in a time when moderates and conservatives are in absolute decline. Uh, so I see that as coinciding with a revival of uh, general leftist thought and Marx being one of the most prominent figures on the political left obviously has a very central place in that. Although it's reinvented Marxism, it's no longer just straight up revolutionary Soviet style Marxist Leninism. It is critical theory. It is uh, philosophical derivations of Marxism that also, it turns out, historically trace their lineage to that decade in the aftermath of the Soviet Revolution. 
Uh, the Frankfurt School founded in 1923, for example, as a direct aftermath of the Soviet Union. And there are we theorists that are there at its opening conference uh, say that Lenin has reinvigorated us. Lenin has reinvigorated Marxist theory. Uh, so that's off to the races from there. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a different brand of Marxism. It is definitely ascendant. And it's ascended very rapidly from a point in history, 1991, when most people thought it was dead. Philip W. Magnus is senior research faculty and director of research and education at the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the co-author of the paper, The Mainstreaming of Marx, Measuring the Effect of the Russian Revolution on Karl Marx's Influence, along with Michael McCovey, which we've been discussing today. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thank you for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.